There are five times more hires made through Indeed.com than any other job site. Imagine a lottery that had five times more winners. A Sunday with five times more touchdowns. When you're hiring, it makes five times more sense to use Indeed. Right now, we're giving new users a $50 credit to post a sponsored job on the world's number one job site. Claim your $50 credit at Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts. Today, we talk to a marketing and business expert who has written 18 books, travels the country doing keynote speeches everywhere, started an alternative MBA program, and has even founded his own companies. I'm honored to welcome my friend, Seth Godin, to All Business today, right here with Jeffrey Hazlett. He's one of the world's most respected business experts, Jeffrey Hazlett. I want to take you behind the scenes on what's happening in business today. And whether you're on Main Street or Wall Street, we're going to find out the secrets behind their success. This is All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Fortinet. Hey, Seth, we pass in the night. You and I get a chance to see each other. Do you remember the first time we met? Do you even remember that? Oh, I have it written down in my calendar, circled in red with little hearts next to it. <laughs> yeah, I bet you do. I remember we it was as we were down at an event right before Obama's inauguration in Florida, and we were speaking, and Keith Ferrazzi and a bunch of folks were sitting around trying to do some kumbaya thing on the guitar, if you remember that. And you and I left, looked at each other, and we both just left. I, I remember that. Yeah. Well, you... we left for different reasons. Yeah. <laughs> we left for different reasons because I have been told in writing that my best contribution to sing-alongs is to leave the room. <laughs> my best contribution is to listen. <laughs> so same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so similar reasons. Hey, tell me about the business of you. Because, I mean, you've you've become, and I'd say I, I have as well, our own, li- and our own brand, our own kind of company just around us. So talk to me about you and your business and how is it organized? Well, first, I would uh, take great pains to point out what a brand is. A brand is not a logo, and a brand is not necessarily a company. A brand is the expectations and promises that we have about who we're going to interact with and what we're going to get when we engage with something. So the state of Alaska has a brand, but it's not a company. Uh, The Catholic Church has a brand. But just because you have a logo or trying to make a living, you might not have a brand. You might just be someone trying to make a living. Actually, Seth, I call it a promise delivered. You know, there you go. Yeah, that works for me. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I decided uh, 13 or 14 years ago that I wasn't going to be in business anymore, Mm -hmm. that I have essentially no staff. Uh, If you see something I wrote, I wrote it myself. Uh, I'm not trying to optimize income or anything close to that. What I'm trying to do is be in the business of change, which requires me to be in the business of trust. And so, you know, I've written 6,000 blog posts. My blog has generated a revenue of zero since I started it. Uh, this isn't, I'm not keeping track of what's the best way to make a nickel. I'm keeping track of what's the best way to make a difference. And are you doing that mostly just because that, I mean, that's more of a personal thing? I mean, it's got to be a big personal Yeah, what thing. a privilege. Yeah, What exactly. a privilege to be able to do this. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you think about it, it wasn't until uh, 200 years ago that, most people thought about the fact that they existed to make a living, to make a profit. That's new. And 
you know, musicians until the year 1910, the musician didn't do it to make a living. The musician did it because they wanted to play music. Writers didn't do it to make a living. They did it because they wanted to write. And there's nothing about our uh, hyper-capitalist society that says that it is morally imperative that everything you do be to make a buck. Yeah, but you make money from it, though, too, right? I mean, you do, so there's nothing, but there's nothing wrong with that either. I like that. That's how I keep score. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I made the decision a long time ago that if I'm doing something digital where the marginal cost of me sharing it is zero, I usually share it for free because that's a good way to make change happen. But there are lots of things where there is a, a marginal cost to showing up. There's a marginal cost to chopping down a tree and printing a book. Or uh, if you run a course and you want the people who are in it to be truly committed, the best language we have for that is to charge money. So I'm happy to charge money for things I do that people um, consume better when they pay for it. But I am honest in telling you that I don't look at bestseller lists. I don't try to make numbers go up because I did that for a long time and it was exhausting. And I didn't think that I wanted to spend my whole life doing that because there are other things that are more interesting to me. You know, we're not similar in size or the way we look, but we're real similar in our beliefs because I, you know, I'm kind of of the mind, if you give, 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 you get, get, get. And that's really what you're saying here, too. And I'm going to get into the connection and networking and the th- pieces that you've defined. But but that's really what you're saying is by sharing, and more you share, the more you end up getting or changing in this case. But then you also can make a living at it. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, what people in North America often forget is that most people here have more resources than the last king of France did. Mm -hmm. And that the things that we think we really need, we don't really need, we just want. And, you know, I know probably 11 billionaires, and they're no happier than you and me. They just have more zeros. So if you're going (laughs) to give up what you got to get a zero, that doesn't make any sense. One of my favorite things to see is if I teach someone and then they take these ideas and teach someone else and I get no credit and no upside, that's a win. Because if your goal is to make change, it's better uh, to take responsibility than it is to demand authority or credit. That's a great way of putting it. You, you've written 18 books so far. Do you have a favorite? Well, I don't know how many kids you have. I have two, I have um, two children. Have any, I only have two. So now you know the answer. To, yeah. Now you know the answer to that question, which is I don't have a favorite. You know, the ones that sell the least are the ones that I feel like are underappreciated. Uh, I, you know, one book I wrote took me uh, eight hours a day for fourteen months to write, and wow. another book took me two weeks to write. Yeah. And I love them both. And what I love about books is they're Proustian. You hold it in your hand, you put them on the shelf, you smell them, they have a heft, you give them to other people. They are the best design method yet created to uh, have a portable way to show someone else what you think and how you care. And it makes me very sad that the industry is fading. It it is tough. And and I've been the biggest believer in print since Gutenberg. I love and I'm an old printer. I used to be in the printing business, and and I still love the book. And I just there's something about opening it up. And you, as you said, turn the pages and smell it and hold it. 
Um, I just haven't caught on to the ebook. I know I read a couple of them by them, but I really like to have the book first. I like I like to have that book. I like to write in it and everything else. Yeah, the, yeah you know, what, one of the challenges that ebooks have, I have 648 ebooks on my Kindle, is once you start touching a digital device, you're only one click away from your email. And for most humans, email is more compelling than a book. You went to you went to a self published model. Why'd you do that? I know the answer, but I want uh, well, other, I want other people to hear it. Well, I think it's great. I've I've gone back and forth a few mm -hmm. times, and it's annoying to some people how often I've changed my mind. But my most recent book, which is called Your Turn, uh, I designed myself, I wrote myself, I laid it out, I printed it, and I sell it online only. And the reason I did that was, uh, it's very hard to work with bookstores online and off if you want to do something non-traditional. So in this case, I try to sell the book in a five-pack, sometimes a three-pack, sometimes a 12-pack, sometimes a 99-pack. Because if the people around you read it as well as you reading it, uh, everything changes faster. Yeah. Now, I can't go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble and give them a five-pack of a book and have them understand what to do with it. So I did it myself. And part of the reason that I can do it, probably than anyone can do it, is the very idea behind permission marketing from 15 years ago, which is if you earn the privilege of being able to correspond with your fans by email, you never need a middleman ever again, no matter what it is you sell. Right. Because all you have to do is, is let those people know, and it might get you a million people, let them know it's ready, and some of them will come get one. And that's so much faster and more effective and more efficient that while I love bookstores and I hope that they thrive, it's really hard to launch a book in a bookstore and have it meet your expectations. Oh, it's really tough. I mean, people don't understand. You know, there's this year there'll be three and a half million new books of the of business books, three hundred ninety-eight thousand business books, three hundred ninety-eight thousand business books in one year. And in as you well know, the average life or lifespan or sale of a book is about seventy-five hundred copies for the average book. So when guys like oh, you, it's, le it's yeah. less than it's less than that now. Oh, is it? Yeah. It could be. I, that was the oh, last figure I had. Well, I think it has to be too because there's just so many of them, you know. But, yeah, I think it's closer to a hundred now. Oh, that could very well. Well, with you and I, I mean, when we're selling lots of books, but don't you the model that you just described? Does it give you the scale that you think you, you can in terms of impacting the change? I get that the change is impacted because you've got people who were, you know, driving it, really feel it, they they drink the Kool-Aid, but does it give you the scale? So here's here's the debate I have with myself about scale. If I write a I wrote a blog post today about ad blockers, and that post will end up being read because it's popular by about three million people. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but I don't often write a book that gets read by three million. No, no, I'm not yet. I can tell you that right now. So, so, <laughs> so, if the goal is to is if the goal is reach, yep. you shouldn't put it in a book. Yep. If the goal is impact over time, books beat blogs any day. So then the question is, if it's not how many people, it's how deep can you go? And what we know is that books like uh, The Tipping Point, In Search of Excellence, uh, Trods, these books stick around for years because the idea gets under the skin of some people. Not a lot of people, hundreds of thousands, maybe a million. But that's enough to change the culture. And in the case of your turn, you know, it's been my best-selling book since the day it came out. It just keeps selling and selling, even though I don't promote it and it's only online. And the reason is 
because if you buy five, you're going to give them away. And right at the back of the book, it says how to get more, and that leads to more of them being given away. Mm-hmm. And it's building that into the book itself, I think, was the key to having it have an impact. So you, you talk about books, which I think is imperative for people who are trying to make change. You have some kind of manifesto or a guide to be able to have people refer to. I love, I love books that way. What about the speaking side of the business? There are a lot of, a lot of corporate guys that are listening to this show. A lot of business owners, they're using speeches as a way to get their message across. What do you think about that? Okay, so the the speaking industry is is a bimodal distribution with one hump at zero and another hump at a lot of money. And the hump that's at zero is how much do you have to pay to get someone who's pretty good but not famous to give a speech? And in that region are all the people who are doing TEDx talks and all the people who are uh, speaking at many conferences that you've never heard of. And public speaking goes back since, you know, Demosthenes and Lincoln and everybody else. It only makes significant change happen if the talk... Um, gets repeated, or if the talk leads to a meeting, or if the talk leads to a gig, it's very rare that someone hears a speech. Sorry, that's my puppy. It's oh, very rare. What kind of dog you got? But no, no, we got to interrupt. What kind of dog you got? We I got love... we got a mutt. Really? A mutt. How how old's yeah. the dog? He's three years old. He was rescued from the beach in Puerto Rico. Oh, good for you. But he does he doesn't have an accent. Or anything. <laughs> um, does he respond to Spanish? No. Oh, okay. He, Just he, curious. You know, he, he got him when he was really young. Okay, got Anyway, um, so, you know, I started my career doing that kind of speaking. When I was at right. Your Dine, uh, the first 100 speeches I gave, I gave for free to teach people what we were building. Right. And the point of a speech like that isn't that it will make you well-known, because it won't. The point of a speech like that is to get you a meeting with somebody who believes in what you just taught them. And then... You can interact with them and turn it into something else. Right. And we've been seduced by the magic of TED to think that you can give three speeches and then the next thing you know, you're Sir Ken Anderson or Brene Brown. And that's going to happen to somebody, but it's not going to happen to you. Right. And, and the other hump is the hump for famous people because famous people get paid to speak because they can only be in one place at a time. And the organizer gets to say to the audience, you're special, I got you, you know, Colin Powell yeah. to come speak. And or Seth Godin again, or Jeff Hazlett. Come on, let's say that we Yeah, yeah. this is great. Yeah, it's good for us. And I you know, I am uh, so thrilled that I've been able to do it six hundred or so times. And I love every one of them and I work super hard to do it well. But you know, personally I love to look people in the eye and see it work in real time. I love the fact that an hour into it, you're done. Yeah. So for one hour, you think the world's going to explode, and then you're done. There's no calls in the middle of the night afterwards about an emergency because you're done. Yep. And more people should decide to do it for a living, but to do it for a living, you got to figure out how to be famous at something else. Yeah, well, or you got to be really good at what you do and how you do it and the way in which you do it. And it's tough for people. It's a very small – It's a, I don't want to use the word elite, but it is. It's a very – small group of people who can make the kind of money that we make at that level. There's not a lot. It's a very small percentage. I mean, I, I know that because I'm doing it. You're doing it. I know other people who who do it. And I know many, 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 many thousands who are aspiring to it, but but aren't. Let me, what? Right. And I, but the punchline I want to give them, since you brought up the punchline, is not you need to get better at it because you do have to be good. The punchline is you have to be famous. 
And too many people think that being good at it will get them famous. But it doesn't go in that order. It goes in the other order. Well, you know, sometimes I speak to speakers and or and authors and, or people now television because of the television and stuff I'm doing. And I said, pick one. Do you want to be famous or do you want to be rich? Because you, <laughs> you usually don't get both. So figure out which one. You want fame or you want fortune because you don't usually get one. And you do. Would you agree with that? I'm not sure. I think we live in a celebrity-obsessed culture. Yeah. What tends to happen is people, I'm meeting more and more of them, if they think there's a camera nearby, they suspend all of their morals and all of their goals yeah. in the search of becoming famous. And I don't get that. If I was a chef and I loved cooking, I wouldn't try to be a TV chef. Because as soon as you start going down that road of doing more TV shows, what you're doing is racing to the bottom. And you're doing a show of America's Worst Cooks or America's Worst Diners yeah. or a show where you're yelling yeah. at people, yeah. none of which is what you set out to do in the first place. Now you're just hooked on being famous, and I think that's sort of empty. Well, I do too. I think you've got to I, – I would rather have you concentrate. And I always tell people you can be good at what you do, make money with it, and then if it gains you the fame or you could buy the fame if you want to buy the fame. And I watch people do that as well, and I'm sure you do too. But I think if you're better at what you do, it the, the fame comes and finds you. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, most of the speakers you and I see aren't very good at it. And the reason they're not very good at it is because they're afraid, not because they haven't tried. And public speaking is one of those old-school things that involve conquering the resistance, conquering the fear of stage fright and writer's block and shame and vulnerability. And to be willing to stand up on the stage and be 100% generous, not, you know, I don't sell from the back of the room. I don't sell anything. I don't pitch. Yep. Um, all the years I was running Squidoo, I never stood up there and encouraged people to, you know, go interact with us because that's not what it's for. What it's for is how can you help the audience? And if the thing you work on helps the audience, then by all means, bring it along. Yeah. But you're not there because it's a cheap way to make a sales call. You're there if you're going to be a good speaker because you want to change somebody in the audience for the better. Yeah, I, I love that. I, and that's a great way of being able to sell it. The, are, are you doing TED Talks anymore? Um, well, I've done uh, three on the site plus one that they featured, and then I did a TEDx. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there are so many cool venues now yeah. that I haven't found the need to go to Vancouver uh, this year to go do it again. I mean, the people are really great. But... What we're seeing is that Ted opened the door for places like Inbound and the Do Lectures and everywhere you look. Um, and it's also now possible uh, to go to a TEDx and then have that go viral or build your own video and have that go viral. It doesn't yep. have to be in a particular uh, venue. But I, I think the bigger challenge here for people who are listening is not to say, how do I get picked? It's to say, am I ready to commit for a 10-year process of earning trust and making change in a very specific thing? Because, you know, there are some speakers who someone calls and says, do you speak? They say, what do you want me to speak about? Those people are wandering generality. Yeah, right. Where you need to be, as my friend Zig used to say, is a meaningful specific. Yeah. You know, I, do, I talk about this to these people, and that's all I do. Sorry, I can't help you is a very powerful way to be. Oh, it's very it's empowering for you, and, and it gives you great power. Hey, i got to take a quick break. Um, but that was a great reference to Zig, by the way. I love Zig. I miss Zig. 
Uh, we, I, I, was, I was talking to Brian Tracy the other day, and I, I think we're at the end of an era. Well, let, well, we're also moving into fall, okay? This is going to be kind of a bizarre transition, but fall is in the air, and everyone is ready for pumpkin season. So Duncan has a great pumpkin latte, but I've had to add a turbo shot of espresso to mine because that's what I drink. But head into Duncan today and try some of the new fall flavors. All business with Jeffrey Hazlitt runs on Duncan, and America runs on Duncan. Do you drink coffee, Seth? I make coffee every single morning that I roast myself, but I don't drink it. I just serve it to my friends. Do you really? Do you, are you a tea drinker? Yes, what do you? You got What do you? you yeah, you I, I me, drink. You seem 20, more like a tea drinker to me. Yeah. Twenty or thirty cups of herbal tea a day. Do you um, really? But I only I only have two speeds, and you don't want to see the other one. So <laughs> caffeine is not part of the agenda. <laughs> hey, talk to me about the connection economy. Explain it. Okay, so. You know, all of us, even me and you, our instinct is to imagine a scarcity-based industrial economy where you make a thing and there's scarce shelf space and there's scarce time to promote it and you need workers who do what they're told that uh, cost less and go faster than they did yesterday. That's how we grew up. That's the environment that we're used to and that's not what the economy is about anymore. And so when you hear people talking about the unemployment rate or talking about where the economy's going and when our jobs are going to come back to Detroit, et cetera, et cetera. What's actually happening here is we are shifting for the first time in 100 years from an economy based on how cheap can you make a widget to an economy based on who trusts you and who will listen to you. Yep. And so someone says, why is Uber worth billions of dollars? They don't own anything. Well, in fact, in just <laughs> a few years, they, they own the trust of a segment of the population yep. and permission to follow up with those people. They have a, a device in their pocket that's one button away from Uber. That's about connection. It's connecting someone who wants a car to someone who wants a passenger. That if you think about what Amazon does, what Airbnb does, what all the companies and the charities that we are talking about going forward do, is they make a connection between one side and the other. The politicians haven't gotten this yet, but they will soon. And it's transformative, because what happens is if you merely make stuff, we can find someone cheaper than you. And that's why most of the widgets in your house weren't made in your neighborhood. They were made somewhere with working conditions you wouldn't tolerate, far cheaper than you could ever make it. But the race to the top is who are you listening to reading, engaging with, who do you trust? And mostly, my favorite quote, who would you miss if they were gone? Yeah. You know, and there's more value in that. There's a lot more value. You can extract more. I mean, it, let's use Uber in his prime example. I mean, I use Uber every day. Most, pe- most people I know use Uber every day. And it's more expensive than going by a normal cab. But you know what? I don't mind because I know what I'm getting and how I'm getting it, and I know what to expect, and it's mine. And I think that's that's, that's well, really it's, what you and said. It's, in fact, it's not it's not going to be more expensive than a cab forever, particularly if someone shows up to compete with them, yeah. because most of the time a cab is driving around, it's empty. Yeah. And if you can be the connector, well, then the efficiency that's created goes through the roof. I, I my prediction from a year and a half ago is the way self-driving cars are going to get into our culture is that Uber is going to say to anybody who has a self-driving car, when you're at work, 
flip the switch and it'll, the car will drive for Uber. And so your car will start paying for itself by driving people who need it. Um, and there's no reason that we're not going to end up five, ten years down the road with more and more of the value and everything in our lives produced not by the machine that made it, because the machine's going to make just about everything, but by the human who figured out how to make a connection happen. Well, speaking of self-driving cars, and if that um, prognostication comes true or prediction comes true about using those cars to work for you when you're not using them, well, in the end, that'll take off more cars off the road, too, won't it? Oh, yeah. It's going to make, first of all, they'll be way safer, way more efficient. If you if you look at Los Angeles, more than half the land in Los Angeles is for parking. <laughs> Which is crazy. Which is crazy. Right. Yeah. And so that goes away because you don't need parking lots anymore. There you go. What about, hey, talk to me about the network effect then. So how's that connected to the connection economy? So the question we start with is, the first person with a fax machine, what exactly did he do with it? Because it's no good. If you only, if there's only one fax machine in the world. Who are you going to send a fax to? Yeah. So what you do is you tell everyone you know that they need to go get a fax machine because otherwise yours is broken. Right. Well, once a lot of people are on the network, this is uh, called Metcalf's Law, the network becomes more powerful. Email is worth, net worth more now than ever before because everyone has email. So the network effect says that you want to build a product or a service that works better when other people use it. And you would say, well, that only applies to things like email. Well, we just figured out it also applies to Uber. And it also applies to Airbnb. So Hilton has an industrial mindset. They say, we have 400,000 hotel rooms. Stay here if you want. Airbnb says we have no hotel rooms. But we have a network effect because the more people who use Airbnb, the better Airbnb works. So why do why doesn't another business use Hilton as an example? Why doesn't Hilton get that? Why doesn't Holiday Inn get that? Why doesn't any other hospitality network get that? Well, so now you're asking a question about the method of change in organization. And there's a difference between getting it and doing it. But the fact is that the people in the typewriter business knew word processors were coming, and the word processor business knew computers were coming. That doesn't mean they were going to do something about it. And they don't do something about it for two big reasons. Big reason number one, you go to work at a company that is stable and dominant because you like having a job as the overdog, not the underdog. And so when you have a chance to propose projects where you're going to be the underdog, you say, well, let someone else do that. That's not what I signed up for. And problem number two is all of these innovations come with one big sentence, which is, this might not work. Mm-hmm. And corporations hate to say that sentence, especially public corporations. And that's why even these wonderful startups, as soon as they go public, they stop being great companies. They stop being great companies. Right? Exactly. So, you know, Twitter was totally lined up to be a communications platform for a new century. And then they went public. And then all of a sudden, everyone's goal is how to make the stock price go up $1 today. Because yeah. if you have 100,000 options, that's a good day. Yep. And that's not how you build a great company. Exactly. Hey, speaking of money, let me take another break here. It's great to have the good folks at Liberty Tax on board with all business. Liberty is the fastest growing retail tax prep 
firm ever with over 4,000 offices in North America. It's a great seasonal franchise opportunity too. So if you're looking to get into the business, add another service to your business or just need to get great tax prep services, look to Liberty. It'll be, be the end of the year before you know it. So make sure you start looking around and talking to your local Liberty tax uh, franchisee. Let me, Seth, I want to ask you, when I, when one of the things that I'm always um, just intrigued by every time you and I sit down is the depth of knowledge that you have and how deep you are because you're a deep, you're a deep thinker. And I, and I, I think you look at things differently. What, what, what's caused that in your life? How did you come about that? Well, you're very kind to say that. Well, um, no, but it's uh, the truth. Seth, it's the truth. I mean, I mean look, I, I consider myself a pretty learned guy, um, and, but we, we both have different styles and different ways that we do, all do things, which I honor everyone that does different things different ways. But you, it, it just always has blown me away by when I sit with you and talk with you, even just in casual conversations, you just you come across as that very deep kind of soul. And I'm just kind of curious how you got there. Uh, I guess I would uh, point out a couple of things. Uh, the first thing is growing up as sort of an unpopular nerd, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how things worked and why they were the way they were. And I don't think many adolescents spend a lot of time doing that, but mm -hmm. there's certainly a class of nerdy kid who does. And so if I see something succeeding, I want to understand why, right? And I never was good enough to understand how computers worked. I could sort of fake it. But I'm really fascinated by how humans work and how culture works. Why is it in Canada the double-double is the thing everyone orders at Tim Hortons, and in the States everyone's going to a Dunkin'? Why is it that uh, Apple went up and Dell went down? What did Dell do wrong, and how can we explain that? And a lot of people are totally content, I'm still amazed at this, to just walk right on by a mystery. Walk, like, whatever. Mm -hmm. I can't let it go. I need to come up with a theory, find a theory, read about it, at least to quiet it in my mind enough that I can move on to the next thing. How many lists of things then, do you have? How many lists of things do you have like that? I bet you bet you see those things throughout the day, and you either do you make a mental note or do you write them down? I don't write them down. Um, I see 200 to 2,000 of them a day now, and so I got to ignore most of them. Yeah. But, you know, back in the days when I would go to a bookstore three days a week, I would stand in the bookstore for hours looking at what was getting faced out, what was selling, what was popular, what's the theory, which publishers it come from, how does that What's the universe look like? Today I went to the farmer's market in my little town. Why is there a line at this farmer's market stand and not a line at that farmer's stand? And how did this farmer get away with charging twice as much for tomatoes as those same tomatoes over there? And this person who's buying stuff, they came to the farmer's market and they bought a muffin for their kid. They had to work to buy a muffin because everything else here is healthy. Why did they buy them a muffin? <laughs> and, you know, so that narrative is constantly going on in my head. And over time, um, I tried to got, go from that sort of tactical, uh, completest thing to more of a spiritual, uh, humanist understanding of what's the narrative everyone is walking around with. Right. And for the reason that I've shifted so much of my work to be about change is I've realized that if the narrative is what it is, you can do anything you want, 
and nothing's going to happen. We got to get to the heart of the narrative. So you know, the people who uh, claim to be skeptics of uh, atmosphere cancer and the warming of the Earth aren't actually scientists, nor are they actually evil people. They are merely people who are carrying around a narrative that is immune to the both the facts and the pathos of what's going on around them. So we can bring them more facts and bring them more pathos. It's not going to do any good. We'll change them. We're going to have to figure out where did that narrative come from and what can counter that narrative to get people to to, to act in a way that they'll be proud of later. Yeah, and I'm, I'm always intrigued by individuals like you who, who go in deep to find out the whys. You know, I, I'm usually the first one to figure out when I see something, I want to fix it. You know, and I don't always go into the whys, although sometimes I can figure that out as I go. But you, that's your that's your first tendency is to go into the why. Yeah, because I tried to fix it for a long time and it never worked. Right, right. <laughs> hey, right. So when you know when I when I started in the book business, yep. I got eight or nine hundred rejection letters in my first year. Yeah. Right. Every week I would get fifteen to twenty rejection letters in the mail. And I could prove the book they were rejecting was good and that they shouldn't have rejected it. And all my proving, all my litigating, all my railing about it did no good whatsoever. Somebody asked me, I asked fan questions. Here's a fan question for you. You're going to love this one. I actually laughed my rear end off. What's it like to be the second best or second – no, that's what it is. What is it like to be the second most famous graduate of Williamsville East High School? Someone. <laughs> so, so this is from Tom Rapisi, the class of 88. I thought that was so cool. Do you know Tom? I don't, but I'm going to outlast him. How else can I become number one? Yeah, well, he's, uh, he's saying he's number one. He's actually my agent. He's been my agent for years, and he, he went to the Got same it. high school. And he, he says, I dare you to ask this question. So I, there we, I'm going to get a steak dinner out of that one. There we go. I'm, I'll, I'll cut you oh, in. I, I, we'll cut I'm you glad in. You're, I'm glad you asked the question. You know, you, you're from everyone. So where, is, where is Williamsville East High School? What a, what a unique name, by the way. East High School. It, is, it must it be is, a West High it School, is a too. Little bit, it's a little bit north of Williamsville South, and there is no Williamsville West. Um, Williamsville East High School is eight miles from Buffalo, New York, yeah. and it was a great, great place to grow up. Everybody I have ever met carries around baggage from high school, and it is always uninteresting. You know, it is. You know, And Tom, I know his father was a doctor there, and they, yeah. owned, the ho- they owned a hotel outside of the city, right outside the city. You might remember that. I don't know. So anyway, I know that's where you grew up. Let me, let me, I want to get into some rapid fire questions, just some real quick. Ready. What's the most common thing people ask advice on? How to get their boss to let them do something. Yeah, it is. And it's amazing, isn't it? Who, um, and who, the answer, the answer, yeah. of course, is a smart boss won't let you do something that they're going to get the blame for. So if it's something important, just do, just go do it. Just go do it. Right. Go do it. What are you? They're gonna get fired for it? Uh, I, you know, exactly. doubtful. Yeah, doubtful. But even if you do, you did it for the right reason. So anyway, who who is mastering marketing in today's uh, connection economy? Either brand or person. Who do you think's doing it? Um, you know, I see my friends at Charity Water and Room to Read, two yep. charities that have each raised a quarter of a billion dollars, or or Jim Zorkowski at Build On, who's on the same. Past. When you watch 
organizations that are figuring out how to use these tools to save people's lives. I don't know what you could hope for. Anything more than that. I mean, that's about as good as it gets. Yeah, the charity water, they're just killing it. They are just doing a great job. And, and it's just amazing to watch 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 it work so well. Um, yep. How about your, what's your favorite place to speak? Um, I w- prefer to speak to a room that's a little too small mm-hmm. with people who actually came to hear me, uh, where the uh, tech people actually read my four-page rider and thought about it. Uh, and other than that, I'm in. So the other day it was uh, a little insurance group in Tarrytown, New York, and the day before that it was a little in Puerto Rico, but sometimes, like the week before that, it was 14,000 people yeah. at HubSpot in Boston. Um, I don't need the geography to matter, but I'll tell you, you get 20 extra points if I don't have to get on the airport. Yeah, you do, That's it, which is always a good thing. You you like to take the train over the airplane or car? Uh, I want to ride my bike there if possible. Do you live that lifestyle? You must live that lifestyle. Well, you know, I made the choice that the hardest work I was going to do would be the scariest work of thinking and talking about things that's, that uh, unsettle people. Mm-hmm. And in exchange, I don't go to meetings. I don't watch television. I do a lot of stuff all day that doesn't look like I'm working very hard because what I'm actually doing is uh, scaring myself to death. <laughs> which which we're, we're glad you do. Right, I'm, I am. I'm glad you do. I laugh at that, but I, but I know what you mean by that, and and I appreciate that because then you're coming up with some great things. When you write the book, are you are you handwriting? Or are you typing, or how do you? How, what's the I have, process? I have not I have not written more than two sentences in a row by hand in 30 years. I don't know how. Hmm. I have no ability other than signing that scrawl that is my signature. I just can't handwrite anything. It's I gone. suck at it. I, I I just, is it because you're so bad at writing or you just don't want to do it? I mean, I'm talking about handwriting. Um, yeah, I think I have a, a, you know, I was one of the beta testers for the original Mac in 1984. I had one before anybody else. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've answered, I think, 175,000 emails in my career. I have a really special relationship with the keyboard. And I know how to sing and dance with the keyboard and make it do what I want. And when I hold a pen in my hand, I get frustrated because the pen isn't doing what I want. It's not as and fast. It's not as fast, I, right? I, I yeah. mean, if for me, it, I can't. It doesn't look good. Yeah. Well, it doesn't one, look it like does. my handwriting. My <laughs> handwriting is Garamond. Yeah, it's terrible. I, can't, I look at words after I've written them and go, what did I write? What did I, <laughs> you know, what, what is that? I mean, I literally am looking at my handwritten notes right now, and I'm going, what does that word say? And, and, and it's just so tough. And I find that also, and I think this is for you, my, my hand can't keep up with my head. And I can type faster. At least I can keep up. Yep. I, I'm, I actually have gone to dictation, you know, like with Dragon Speak and others, because I actually like to speak more than write or type. Well, good for you. I tried it and I failed. Yeah, I'm, I'm very impressed that you figured out how to do it. I've done as be- best I can. It's not as good. It's I mean, it's not bad, um, but it's not it's not the same, right? Um, as the actual words that come out of your mouth, but it's not so bad. I kind of like it. What what is FX nine? So I did a before I was an author. I was a book packager. I came up with ideas for books and then sold them to publishers and then made them. And my 12-year-old cousin, I discovered, had never once in his life read a book for fun, which I found incredible. 
So I went and I got the rights to a whole bunch of Nintendo games. This was right at the peak of the Nintendo revolution. And I got the rights to turn them into novels. The way they make novels about movies, I was making novels about video games. And so I hired him and a bunch of his friends to play the games while I recorded the output onto a VCR. And then I wrote a 20-page outline of each story and hired uh, children's book authors to turn them into novels. Scholastic published them, but the question would be, who should be the author? And the thing about bookstores is they file books by the name of the author. So I wanted the author to be Joe Nintendo, but I didn't own the rights to the word Nintendo, so we made his last name Nine, so if you looked for Nintendo, it would be right there under the NIN. <laughs> Very good. What We sold a million copies! Did you really? It was great. Oh. Are you still getting residuals for that? Yeah, you know, eventually the long tail goes to zero. That's where this one is. Yeah, that's yeah, that, which is tr cool, which is really cool. But anyway, let me ask you another question. Um, what are you reading today? Um, you know, I read two or three books a day. I don't finish very many. Uh, I was just reading that book by the speechwriter of the uh, governor who went on that walk on the uh, Appalachian Trail. That's pretty funny. Uh, there's a book uh, called Mr. Product. That's what, no, wait, which, which uh, book? Hang on, go back to that. The, the governor that did that or the or the walk in the okay. book? Okay, do you remember, uh, that was his name, Mark, I'm going to go grab it and tell you his name. There was a disgraced governor of South Carolina who disappeared oh. for a few days and it turned out he was with um, his girlfriend. His girlfriend in Argentina, down in, yeah, Argentina. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he, he said he had been walking the Appalachian Trail. Anyway, his speechwriter, Barton Swaim, wrote a book about what it was like to be a speechwriter for this total character. Oh, goodness and gracious. That would be it, good. It, it, the, the thing about the book is it's not really about the governor. It's yeah. about what's it like to be 25 years old, take yourself super seriously, and not be very good at understanding what criticism means. So I'm a third of the way through, and basically what happens is this guy writes great speeches, and the governor changes them to ungrammatical nonsensical things and tells the guy he's doing a bad job. And the guy's really frustrated because he's not doing a bad job, he thinks, because they're good speeches. Except the definition of good, if you're yeah. a speechwriter, is the client needs to say it sounds like me. So if your boss is a semi-literate boob, you've got to write like a speeches to sound like they were written by a semi-literate boob. Exactly. And you've got to at least do it in his voice. So he's got to either exactly. dumb it down or get stupider, you know? Right. <laughs> well, so it's very, it's very tempting to it's very tempting to blame the customer. But I think yeah. one of the lessons is, if you want this person to be your customer, you cannot blame them. It is totally fine to say it's not for you, mm -hmm. and I say that all the time. Someone sends me a note and says, "You know what? You're writing too many blog posts. I would prefer it if you would write shorter, dumber posts once a week." And my answer to that person has to be. Thanks for giving it a try. My blog's not for you. If you want a refund for yeah. all the money you paid for my blog, oh, wait, that's right, it's free. Um, if you don't want to read my blog, that's fine. It's not for you. But if you're going to be my customer, then i got to listen to what's important to you. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, at the same time, I've, I've, you know, I've had that criticism. Somebody said, geez, you know, I don't like your post. And I just wrote back, stop following me. I, you know? If you don't want to do that, that's fine. I'm okay with it. Stop following. I had a, a, you know, I actually had a, a Financial Times 
a person followed myself and Richard Branson around. She said that she didn't like my post. I said, well, stop following me. You don't have to listen. There you go. Yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm perfectly okay with that. But I love it if you do, but if you don't, I get it. What what book has inspired you? Um, you know, when I tell people about Steve Pressfield's classic book, The War of Art, mm-hmm. they are amazed that they've never heard of it. I was amazed after 20 years of reading business books that I had never heard of it. It is essential reading for anybody who wants to do work that's important. Um, and then I would add to that, for anyone who wants to be an entrepreneur, a book sort of out of print that you can get on ebook called The Republic of Tea, T-E-A. It was just stunning. That sort of changed my life. Uh, I regularly reread Zig's books. Yep. Uh, I, uh, Susan Piver, P-I-V-E-R, has written some magical books about thinking um, and you know, on and on and on. So did you, did you ever I'm read? So fortunate. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to add. If you read Zig's books, you ever read Og Mandino? I did a long time ago. Yeah. I should probably put it back on the agenda. Yeah, his his classic um, salesman book. I think that the world's greatest salesman. I think would be a good. That you know, if you like. Right. Zig, no, that's the one I remember. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good one. And I go back and read. You know, Dale Carnegie. Quite frankly, I every so often. Yeah, I, I, I was just back. reading the. Uh, the the intro that Lowell Thomas wrote to Dale Carnegie's book. Mm-hmm. And we live in a totally different time now. I mean, yeah. Lowell Thomas was a reporter. And the intro is the most over-the-top, hyper-dramatized, <laughs> this book is going to change your life forward. I mean, like, you and I would kill for someone to write something like that <laughs> exactly. about. Exactly. We probably would have maybe paid someone to write one like that. Hey, I heard you're a fan of jazz. Uh, one of my team members actually saw you at a jazz concert here not too long ago. What's your, who's your favorite jazz artist? Um, you know, I don't like the middle-of-the-road stuff. I like Jack Dijonette and DJ Iyer. Um, I listen a lot uh, to Gary Smallian, who plays the uh, baritone saxophone. Uh, people in, you know, obscure... Uh, European levels. I don't like discordant stuff, but I like stuff that's real and in the moment. Patricia Barber is always worth seeing. If, if someone's never heard of anyone I just said, they should go Google her and start with her. That's great. Well, I don't think there's anything that you don't do that's far out there one way or the other. What I mean by that is being deep. <laughs> so I wouldn't expect anything else from you, Seth. Hey, let me, one last chance I give you. I give every person that's on this show from Steve Forbes to General Wesley Clark to Donald Trump to Gene Simmons and Pierce Morgan, a shameless plug. Would you like to do a shameless plug? Well, that's quite a, uh, a hit list of peers. I'm not sure I belong on that list, yeah, but there I am anyway. Yeah, you do. You sure do. If you're, on, you're all business with Jeffrey Hazlett, so you belong You belong here because I, I love to, I well, love to I, but read I you promise. and love to listen to you, so... Absolutely. I promise I will never run for president. So two people on that list are already different. Than me. <laughs> I think that was my shameless said, plug. That was <laughs> with that said, the most important thing I can ask people to do is make a ruckus, to dig a little deeper and do something that they won't regret avoiding later. Um, you know, that that's what I wake up measuring every day. Not did something move, did someone buy something, did some transaction occur, but did somebody hear some words or read some words and say, yep, it's my turn. I'm going to go do something. That's all I can ask. That's awesome. And that's a great way to end it. I appreciate it, Seth, so much. Well, thank you for your time. Keep making a ruckus. All right, brother. Thank you. Cheers.
Cheers. Taking you behind the scenes of what's happening in the business world, Jeffrey Hazlett hosts All Business, brought to you by Fortinet. Hey, I like to end every show at the very end, of course, because it is the end, about what I learned. I am always intrigued, and you heard me give Seth some accolades about how deep he is. And you can just, when you stand next to him, now Seth is much smaller than me as an individual. Um, you know, I'm six foot three, and I think and Seth is a little bit shorter than I am. And But yet you get the sense of depth and, and strength that he has, and he carries it quietly. And I'm always intrigued, and I'm always looking for people who are deep thinkers like that and what we can learn just by listening. You know, my son happens to be a deep thinker. You know, even when he was really little, he would look at a pen and say, how does the ink get inside and how does that work? You know, and and I'm intrigued by people who go to the why is it being done that way. And and, and really go after it. And it was interesting to hear him say he's got two to 3,000 of those things in his head in any given day. And to be able to sort out the ones that make the difference in order to part that wisdom to us. The key for us is to listen to the wisdom and to make a difference, to make an impact in whatever it is that you're doing. So that's what I learned. I learned to go find and seek those deep thinkers and put their words and wisdom into use. Hey, this has been Jeffrey Hazlitt, and you've been listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlitt here on Play.it and the CBS Network. And I thank you very much, and don't forget, tell your friends. of what's happening in the business world. Jeffrey Hazlett hosts All Business, brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.